I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Brilliant! Gee! He's round the goalkeeper! He's done it! Absolutely incredible! He launched himself six feet into the crowd and Kung Fu kicked a supporter who was without a shadow of a doubt giving him lip. Does it tame and tame and tame again? Break up the music! Charge a glass! This nation is going to dance all night! Boasting the latest sweat-wicking technology, this podcast is 34% more breathable than episode 11, 17% lighter and features our unique Speak Clear system, which uses sonic microtextures and anti-hesitation nodules to hyper-optimise the listening experience during phases of maximum expression. Meanwhile, our three specially positioned voices are a subtle but evocative nod to the classic mutterings of episode two. Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this is Football Clichés. I'll introduce my, my two guests. First of all, uh, a veteran now of, of this podcast, it's Dave Walker. How are you doing, Dave? Uh, I'm very good. Uh, you put a bit of pressure on us, though, with that, in- with that uh, intro. The unique well, I mean, speak clear got, system. Got to market this sort of thing <laughs> in, in, in this modern age. Um, what was the first football kit you ever bought? Uh, the first one I ever bought was. Um, I'm trying to think. It was e. I think it was a Watford away kit. I always like. I always, for some reason, preferred the away kits when I was younger. Um, and yeah, it was a Watford away kit. It was like, which was like an AC Milan kit. It was red and black stripes. It was really nice in nineteen ninety oh, six seven. Yeah. Oh right. What division were you in then? I think we were in the equivalent of League One, Division Two. Okay. Grand. There's a sense of grandeur about Watford's AC Milan inspired away kit in 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 League One. Interesting. Um, also, a debut on this podcast for Daniel Story. How are you doing? The hardest working man in show business. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm very well. I'm working less hard at the moment, but yes, with no football, but yes. Well, the evidence suggests that because before we before we start mining your brain for football kit chat, uh, I want to run this past you. Uh, you appear to have played out the entire World Cup on FIFA in full in CPU versus CPU mode and mm. then decided to write it all up in a 7,500 word Google document and then just tweet it out. Are you okay, hun? <laughs> You did the uh, word count there, not me. I'm happy to say. <laughs> I yeah. had to do um, it. Yeah, you've got the I opening ceremony on... in there and everything. Yeah, of course. Uh, I used to do it on FIFA Road to World Cup '98 when I was 12 years old. So I thought, mm. perfect background, listening, watching, writing. So yeah, why not? Oh, <laughs> uh, whatever keeps you going. Um, yeah, good fun, really. Um, but you're very welcome here. Um, some of the things we noticed about football this week, uh, Diego Jota of Wolves has been passing the time playing football manager and he's decided to manage Telford United, which seems like a strange choice. Uh, he says he, he's already into the 2029 season. Um, maybe the downtime isn't so bad after all. Uh, <laughs> you, I mean, it takes so long to play these days. I'm, I'm amazed he's got yeah. to 2029. He must literally have been doing nothing else for the past three weeks. Just yeah, occasional hat-tricks and then goes home and plays football manager all night. Um, yeah, fair play to Diego Jota. It'd be nice if he did develop a genuine connection with Telford. He should go and watch a match when it's all back on. He has to, he has to go and play for them at the end of his career, definitely. Yeah. 
Yeah. Can there be any? Can there be any greater signifier of your status as a footballer than being able to sign yourself on a football manager game, play oh, yourself up front, and be successful, Adam? Oh, it must be wonderful. I mean, I, I remember like the occasional guy from school, or in like a, a nearby school who was on Championship Manager, and it was just it was just incredible. The kudos of being on Championship Manager. I'm so jealous. So jealous of. There's a striker on Championship Manager 0102 called Chris Cox, who plays for Barnsley, who uh, was the br- the boyfriend of a, a, my best mate's sister. And <laughs> for that summer, we kind of, he kind of became a cheap player in that as soon as he scored a goal, we were like, this is evidence that he is Kim Kallstrom. Uh, <laughs> I love the degrees of separation with that guy as well. Just um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had to think about it. You were very close. Jose Mourinho just cannot cannot resist just doing some coaching and he, he appears to have held a mini training session on, on Hadley Common near Barnet uh, with uh, Tangy and Dombele, Davinson Sanchez and, and Ryan Sessegnon apparently all present, uh, supposedly um, practising social distancing at the same time. But the only question I have here, I mean, there, there are some serious moral observations here about, you know, whether they ought to be doing this as, as role models and that sort of stuff. But um, what's the point? There's no football. Is, is is it really that important that they go out and train with Mourinho standing there with his whistle? It's classic Mourinho as well. Like he's, he clearly, you know, there's been that lingering issue with Ndombele for a few months that he's just pulling him out of isolation. You will come to Hadley Common and train with me, whether you like yeah. it or not. The way they should have done it, really, to avoid any uh, questions around whether they were breaking the social distancing rules, was sort of entered the common from four different parts like uh, like in uh, Anchorman when all the when all the news teams just appear from all the different directions and just Mourinho in the middle with a loud hailer and they all just you know really really far away that would have been fine the, but they are the, quite um, close it's, it's not a great look yeah I mean I'm glad you put some thought into how they could how they could have gone about this but it seems to me the easiest thing was to simply not done it and carried on with you know their kind of remote training schedules on via video but the the, the saddest aspect to this story Dan, is that um, on one news report, I said footage emerged on social media of Mourinho wearing his trademark purple Spurs training top and tracksuit bottoms makeshift session. And Mourinho has got to the stage where wearing a purple tracksuit is now his trademark. How how far he has fallen. Yeah, it's always been a case with Mourinho that more than any other manager, I think you can tell how it's going by how he looks at the side of the pitch. You know, when he's in his <laughs> when he's in his dark grey suit and blue jumper and smiling with a respectful and respectful looking haircut, all is well. When he has the five o'clock shadow and the shaved head and the tr- the, the purple training top, less so, I suppose. There's only one place to start with Premier League fashion trends, and there's some serious theory that's gone into this, which is the nasal strips. I was in I was in Sainsbury's the other day doing a bit of panic buying, and um, on the on the end of one aisle was was the breathe right nasal strip. It struck me as the most nineties thing I could have ever have seen in Sainsbury's. I find that astonishing. It was in Sainsbury's now. Yeah, they still sell it. Um, I mean, they pivoted to the snoring market um, once once footballer had, had footballer <laughs> okay. had sort of washed its hands with them. They were big. I mean, of course, there's only one player that we associate with nasal strips, and that is. Daniel. Robbie Fowler. Of course. Um, I've done some serious research into this. Do you want to hear it? Uh, we have to say yes, so yes. Yes. Well, I mean, uh, uh, there was a kind of news story that came out about 1998 debunking the, the effect of, of nasal strips, with the, the idea of them being that they would open your nasal passages and allows you, allow you to breathe better during um, aerobic exercise. But um, 
Robbie Fowler, I mean, we all know that he he wore them, but I didn't realise he wore them for five years. He wore them from February 1996 to September 2001. He wore them in the UEFA Cup final in 2001, but he didn't wear them in the FA Cup final in 2001, which, which I, I really want to ask him about is what his strategy was there. Maybe maybe uh, the Millennium Stadium pitch just wasn't as energy sapping as wherever the 2001 UEFA Cup final was. But here, here are the numbers and we can discuss these. He scored a goal every 2.57 games in his career without a nasal strip. But with a nasal strip, he scored a goal every 1.9 games. I think that's a sign of the times, really, because if he was, if a player was doing it now, there would be someone employed at the club who would have made those calculations and <laughs> fed them back to him, and it would be stamped out within 10 games. Whereas <laughs> he just blissfully carried on there, thinking that everything was fine when it clearly wasn't. Wow. Um, it clear, it's clear to me that there is a, there is a, a good 0.67 goals per game, games per goal, advantage to wearing nasal strips daniel do you have fond memories of a nasal strip you sound you seem like someone who, who, who was all about the marginal gains when they were playing uh yeah i mean you're completely wrong but yes um the, <laughs> the one thing i the one thing i wanted to point out is that is that breathe right are owned by glaxo smith Klein. so robbie fowler was probably inadvertently or otherwise was in the hands of big farmer for that five years <laughs> <laughs> i just I, I don't remember anybody else wearing them for that long and being that, I mean, I guess after an, after a while, it just became kind of um, a superstition for him to wear them. But apparently, at, at some points, he was wearing them too high. He was wearing them up on the nasal bone, which which doesn't have the same effect. So um, it was important to wear them in in, in the right way. Uh, there's also Vicks Vapor Rub, which I only associate with Patrick Vieira. Again, that seemed like a fad that kind of gently faded from Premier League football. Mm. Yeah, that was Daniel. another one that was then subsequently debunked. Uh, and they basically said that the menthol in it might trick the brain into thinking it was breathing easier, but it didn't actually help. I also think I also associate it with that one Sunday league player who, who has all the rolls of tape. Uh, I mean, the, the Vicks Vaporub is never used, but it is always in the bag. Somewhere in the sort of late 90s, presumably pioneered by John Terry and Thierry Henry, was, was the socks over the knees look. I have to say that that kind of influenced me. I I, I became a socks over the knees guy at Sunday League for quite a while. Um, How did you find it? I don't know. It's just more comfortable. I just I don't know. I I don't know why I did it at all. I find that curious because I've tried it and it it, I felt I feel exactly the opposite. It's strangely uncomfortable, and the sock, the back of the sock, sort of is uncomfortable. The bend of the knee. Is the problem? If you were standing completely still for the whole match, then it's completely fine. It's probably it keeps you warmer and it maybe looks yeah, it's nice. Warmer. But There's when you move, warm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, when you move with the with the sock over the knee, it's an issue, I think. Yeah, I never thought of of, of limiting my range of motion. Um, but then I, I'm just I never I was never ever going to be a socks rolled down kind of guy. I wear shin pads to five side. I, I want to dress properly for football. It's important. People who wear their socks rolled down to football, I I don't see the glamour. I don't see the glory there. I see them as Waste of space. It should be said in the uh, in pursuit of absolute accuracy that Thierry Henry did an interview with Four Four Two a number of years ago, in which he said that he wasn't the original. It was it was Sonny Anderson of Barcelona and Leon who he ah. copied as his idol, who had his yeah. socks rolled up that high. John Terry credits uh, Roberto Di Matteo for the with the influencing him in his, his oh, sock yeah, choice. Oh yeah, I can picture that. Yeah, he would have. Yeah, he not only did he have his Dimitri was an interesting moment. Not only did he have his socks over his knees, he actually sort of tied them there. He had a little sort of tie 
you know, sort of shoelace style that that kept them kept them up. This is this is exactly the sort of niche content we're going for in, in part one <laughs> of this podcast. Before we move on from the socks, an yeah. important point is that did you know that in 2017, uh, Manchester City youth coach Lee Carsley banned his under 18s from having their socks above their knees? Oh my God! It is a proper football man thing. Yeah. Oh no! This 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 ties into a, a similar theory about you know people who get angry about players wearing wearing gloves, and it's to me it's just, it's like it doesn't make you soft. It just makes you more comfortable to do the thing that you're really good at. I mean, you you, yeah. you wouldn't you wouldn't frown at someone in an office having a really comfortable chair. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just it's just tools of the trade making you. I actually think you would. No, I think I, I think you're wrong there, Adam. I think I think in certain offices, if somebody has a special chair, they would very much get sneered <laughs> yeah, at I'd by the rest of guy. the office. <laughs> Can I make a final point on socks? A final yes. final point, uh, which is the new, uh, the slight f- mania caused when Carl Walker and Danny Rose put their own holes in the back mm. of their socks. Oh, it's which amazing! Yeah, is actually you know I, I, I had a little look at this. It's basically an extended humble brag. It's it's saying my muscles are too big for these socks, so yeah. I want some space. Walker basically said towards the end of games he was getting muscle pain, and he put it down to the fact that his socks were so tight around his muscles that they they basically stopped the blood supply to his to his muscles. Um, and it looks terrible. So that's why. Like, like, oh it yeah, looks really rubbish, doesn't it? And it looks I, so awesome to know. Yeah. Is he doing it? Is he cutting his own socks as part of his pre-match ritual? I mean, we know, as we know, Carl Walker is a very busy man these days, and I suspect uh, uh, he hasn't got time to cut his own socks. I hope he's got someone employed for him to do that. Why are footballers' shin pads so tiny? I want to know, because I've always been a kind of ankle protector plus full shin pad kind of guy, and now I see players at an elite level are wearing shin pads made for six-year-olds. I am one hundred percent with you. One hundred percent with you, Adam, on the on the <laughs> the full ankle support shin pad. I also wear them for five aside. It to me, it like my ankle feels flimsy and and weak and unprotected yeah. if I don't have those full that full shin pads. So maybe you know you'd expect professional footballers would probably have stronger ankles than than you mm. or I. But mm. I yeah, I'm all, I always find it strange the ones the ones that don't even have strapping. Like they just literally. Tiny bit Just of plastic, game, pop, yeah. pop down the sock, take them out after the game. That doesn't seem to me to be offering any any protection. And surely, like, if you look at the number of injuries and stuff, like, how often do you get a actual stud on shin situation? Like, the ankle surely is much more of an injury hotspot than the actual shin bone itself. I don't. I, yeah, it's it's strange. Yeah, I was going to say I'm happy to make the the complete opposite case, which is I think it. it it probably some footballers do feel like it hampers them, particularly attacking players. And um, there is a a theory that suggests that as referees clamped down more on uh, leg break or ankle break or shin break tackles, that players felt that they didn't need as much protection in that area because those type of challenges weren't happening as much. And so they thought, oh, I can feel a little bit more free here. And and they don't they don't seem to train in shin pads either. You see the sort of training in sort of really short sort of sports socks, and you just yeah, this this complete disconnect between the professional level and what I consider to be the correct football attire has, has never been greater. Uh, I feel so detached. I feel like I'm never going to make it as a professional footballer now, um, just based 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 only on on what I choose to wear on my on my legs. The one situation where I will where I think the the, the large strapped shin pad is is not acceptable is when it is combined usually at an amateur level with a with a rolled down sock 
Oh, and yeah. that just looks completely ridiculous. Yeah, because you're moving away from playmaker territory to just grizzled centre half. Is that the Steve Claridge? Yeah, but yeah. Like, Steve Claridge didn't. Did he wear shin pads? I don't think he did. No, he didn't, uh. did he? Because he had his socks rolled down. I mean, there, at some point there was the it was the law, you, laws of the game. You had to wear shin pads. That the whole yeah. thing has been thrown into confusion. You'd be chucked out of power league if you don't have a shin pad. So <laughs> surely yeah, Steve exactly. Claridge is wearing the Claridge is very much the you know you just you just mentioned earlier on about people who think. Um, players who roll their socks down a la Jack Grealish are glamorous. But I mean, Claridge, when I, when I think of that, I think of Steve Claridge and there is nothing about the man, great as he is in many ways, that is glamorous. No, I agree. He he, he sits in a very sort of strange part of that Venn diagram of of, of luxury player and grizzled veteran. Because he, he strikes me as someone who probably would be a proper football man, but he had his socks rolled down. Can you remember the first player you saw wearing boots that weren't black. I think it would have been a, a match of the day player rather than a Nottingham Forest player, I suspect. Mm. I don't think in my formative days of watching football that Brian Clough would have stood for that. Mm. Um, although, as a tangent to that, there is a story by a, a, a tale by Alan Hinton who was played for Derby under Clough. Oh, and yeah, he was of one of the first players to wear white boots. Mm. Uh, he got a, a thousand pounds sponsorship deal and kind of assumed that Clough would hit the roof and managed to kind of avoid him for a couple of weeks to let him simmer down. So this was sort of mid seventies Derby, wasn't it? Yes, so yeah. early seventies, yeah. And it looks so strange to see a player sort of skipping around on really muddy pitches wearing wearing white boots, whereas now you kind of wouldn't wouldn't bat an eyelid. But I, I mean, I remember Paolo Di Canio sort of Celtic and Sheffield Wednesday wearing white boots. And even then it felt like it, I think they were Val Sports and, and they were a real novelty then. And that was at, at that point where I became, you know, choosy about my football boots and, and what I wanted to wear. I thought, this is it. This is the player I want to be. But then there was also a point around sort of 99, 2000 that Martin Keown started wearing red Puma Kings. And I thought, this has gone too far. Martin Keown is now seen as a style icon. Um Dave? I quite like Martin Keown's Red Pumic Kings because whilst they are, yeah, you wouldn't expect necessarily Martin Keown of all people to be something, you know, of an outlandish man when it comes to boot boot colours, but they do fit in perfectly with the Arsenal kit, which I quite like. I don't, if he was, you know, you, you are, I'm sure at various points, many Arsenal players and players for all teams would have wear just all sorts of colours that don't fit in with their kit. But it's sort of, it's almost uniform and I quite like it. It's like if a Watford player wears yellow boots, it's an extension yeah. of the kit colour yeah, and I, I like it. A bit of synergy between kit and boot is, is always nice. One of my favourite listener contributions so far, this is from Premier Seafoods Limited, the top class fishmongers in Grimsby. Why don't goalkeepers have padded elbows anymore? Admittedly, the fashion for huge 90s keepers jerseys is now gone, but why don't they make today's kits with padding? Like Concord, it seems like a great idea that we just don't seem to use anymore and the world's a lesser place because of it. <laughs> Hello to Premier Seafoods, first of all. But theories on theories, Daniel, on why goalkeepers don't have padded elbows anymore? I, I guess, and it comes down to pretty much everything with the, the changing of, of kit manufacturing, is it comes down to weight. Um, I remember speaking to Neville Southall and he said he hated padding on his shirts because as soon as it got wet, it got heavier. And he was the same with boots. He would rather wear really cheap plasticky boots rather than leather ones that would, at the time, would soak up water and make things heavy. So I guess it's a weight issue. Oh, fair uh, enough. Neville well, Southall if jokes. Nev, yeah, if, <laughs> yeah, if Big Nev says it, then uh, I'm, I'm happy to stick with that. But now I think about it, 
yeah, they were quite baggy on the elbows. I mean, they might have offered a bit of protection, Dave, but we're talking about range of movement here, and they're just it's not practical. Yeah, they, they, they're enormous. Uh, and I, th- I still think you, you, I, you still find padded goalkeeper wear at amateur level, uh, including the padded short, which is still very much oh, a thing. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. So I had, to, I had to don when I did my one half in goal uh, during a season where we didn't have a keeper. But, I mean, the, the, obvious, question, the obvious answer really to the, to the initial question was the reason they don't have padded elbows anymore is because a lot of goalkeeper shirts don't even have elbows. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's just yeah. the short-sleeved goalkeeper shirt is very much a, a thing these days. Yeah, it feels like the, the stigma of short-sleeved goalkeepers has, has kind of gently worn off over the years. I mean, back in the day, if you, had a, if you saw a short, short-sleeved goalkeeper, that was, that was a hallmark of erratic goalkeeping. Just yeah. like anyone in tracksuit bottoms, it's that, yeah, they can be got at. Um, I think Bartes was perhaps the, the last real kind of dodgy short sleeve goalkeeper but even then he had yeah. he, he had a kind of element of of maverick about him that he'd probably get away with it what i don't accept is is um is when teams have to wear a really sort of jumbled combination of their kit uh I, i'm thinking of chelsea spurs games over the years where chelsea have had to wear sort of yellow socks or or some sort of terrible combination of their kit to 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 avoid a clash or conversely Sometimes when I'm thinking about a TV game on a Sunday and in my head as a neutral, I'm looking forward to it, thinking this team can play this team. And in my head, they're wearing their first choice kits. And then when they're trotting out and one of them is wearing an unnecessary away kit and the whole spectacle to me is ruined, isn't it? It's important, Daniel, to have proper kits, proper games. 100%. It comes back to our... Uh, when you imagine your first football match, and I, I deeply believe this, you imagine a team in red and white and a team in blue. That is a football match. There's no yellows at that point. There's nothing else. It's just red versus blue. And yeah, I 100% agree with you. It annoys me hugely. The only thing that annoys me more is, and it's a bit of a weird dislike, but I don't like teams that wear have kits where the shirts and the shorts are exactly the same colour. I don't like that. I like a, a red shirt with a white shorts or blue shirt with white shorts, whatever, but not all, both the same. I, I also like um, managers wearing their full kit. I feel like that's a fading thing. Uh, managers, and, yeah. and this, this kind of goes for referees as well. Is And it, I think this might be a sort of assistant managers just trotting around on the sidelines with their socks pulled right up. I think Stuart Pearce was one of those. He just couldn't let his playing days go and he used to sort of march around the technical area with his socks pulled right up. And that is one of the worst looks in football is managers or coaches wearing full kit. Yeah, 100%. Well, I, I have a, a theory with the assistant managers. I think if your assistant manager is the bad cop in the in the pair, then he will be in shorts. And if he's the good cop, he will be in tracksuit bottoms. So any, it fits in with the Stuart Pearce thing perfectly because he was definitely a bad cop coach. Uh, so yes, I'm, I'm completely with you. The problem that you have there, if you're an assistant manager and you're wearing... Uh, socks pulled up do you have shin pads on because if you don't have shin pads on that's the problem football socks pulled pulled up without shin pads look ridiculous this is exactly right because when you think about it um and this is this is well classic cliches really is just that these are the sort of things you don't notice until someone points them out but referees why are you wearing pulled up socks why do referees wear what they wear? The whole thing is just absurd. But then I can't think of an alternative either. So that's the, that, yeah. we're stuck in without this kind of weird fashion purgatory of referees wearing pulled up socks, but without actually having any alternative anyway. So what the hell are we going to do? That, that comes down to setting the example, doesn't it? It's a kind of military 
uh, call back to the referee should look fit and proper and set the example to every player of how to dress and how to behave, I suspect. But yeah, I mean, it does. it is ridiculous when you think about it. They also, I also, I also respect the the referees' unflashy footwear. Is that they all wear sort of you know copper mundials or or the the astroturf equivalent? There's there's no kind of you don't see Mike Dean in pink boots or anything like that, which is a, a nice restraint. Mike Dean's the only man that would ever dare try it, and I I, I, imagine I, I wouldn't rule it out at some thing. stage. I suspect yeah. it's more of a clats thing. Definitely, he might have his name on the boots as well. Yeah, but we, we should remember that um, some referees' kits are, are genuine bangers. Um, early Premier League era, the kind of green and pinstripey um, referee nice, shirt, yeah. you, can, you can pick it up on eBay and it looks really nice. Uh, but the, the ultimate is is the Italian 90 referees' kit, which was the an, an Adidas sort of, um, again, sort of pinstripes across the chest. It was it's a little bit like the France kit at um, World Cup 98. It was a little bit like that. And there's one on eBay and I thought to myself, I could buy it. But there are two questions then. Is what situations would I wear an Italian 90s referee's kit? And uh, please don't suggest please don't suggest any situations. And secondly, if I, if I did, say, wear it to five a side, is, is that the least cool thing you could wear, a referee's kit? Unfortunately, it's a really nice shirt. I want to buy it. It's both the coolest and the least cool thing you can wear, depending on yeah, the situation, right. I think, which is interesting. just don't know what to do. I'm, I'm going to yeah, buy I it. I think it's a, it's a step too far. Okay. Honestly, I, yeah, you can't wear a referee shirt <laughs> in any circumstance. That's ridiculous. Unless you just were going go to like a Sunday league match to cheer on the referee. It's just, I just don't know what I would do. Just walking down to get the papers in a referee shirt just feels so... so, so I'm definitely going to do it now. I'm, I'm You'd look like it. Neighbourhood Watch if you did that. I think it's <laughs> the wrong impression. What I'm really interested in is the language of football kits because it is a whole it is a whole different animal to not just lang- not just football language but language itself. The the marketing speak for new kits and, and new boots and new balls has become so absurd. And I think it might have hit its peak maybe four or five years ago, and, and after that, everyone seemed to be in on the joke. I'm going to give you a couple of examples here just of, of what I'm talking about. When England released their World Cup kit for 2018, this this is some of the gumph that came with it. Uh, the kit featured a new heat transfer crest that is 64% lighter than previous crest applications and is Nike's most breathable crest ever. Player numbers were backed by anti-cling nodes, anti-cling nodes, to stop the shirt sticking in extreme heat. And they've been moved from the centre of the shirt to a more breathable zone below the crest. How can these, <laughs> How do they get away with right? It must be so fun as, as, a, as a copywriter to come up with this crap because it is it is crap and it's unapologetic crap and it, and no one could ever possibly be fooled by it. I mean, it's I absolutely like lu- ludicrous. Now. Yeah, no, I think you are. But I mean, people must be be paid extortionate amounts of money to sit in rooms and come up with this absolute <laughs> nonsense. I mean, anti-cling nodes. I mean, that's the sort of thing that you, you know, you you dread hearing the doctor here tell you that a cancer is spread to. Like, it's yeah. ridiculous. Like, really what even is that? It's yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. I mean, it's absolutely, I mean, a breathable crest. I know. I just, who knew that you needed a breathable, a breathable crest? What you do need for a crest is the, the the only thing I want to see, and I don't think they've ever really managed to grasp this, is is a is, a, is an anti chafing crest. Yeah, uh, nipple chasing on a on the back of a of a football shirt crest is is a terrible scourge that has 
blighted me my entire football shirt wearing life. Dan, have you ever got any thoughts on crests and nipples? Uh, I'm going to try and bring it back to the marketing jargon, if possible. Uh, <laughs> it pro- I think it comes down, there's, there's two types. There's firstly the, the technological jargon, which is, I always remember the Italy kit in 2014 uh, contained tape that mic- they said micro-massaged the players while they were playing, wow. which I thought was incredible. Oh, yeah. Uh, it- it's focused on things that like actively work during a game, which are the utter bollocks, the, the real peak <laughs> yeah. of football marketing speak bollocks. It's things that things that your kit will do during the game to help you play better, yeah, rather than crucially... just being passive and there. Uh, it, some of it is just absurd. Um, England's 2011 goalkeeper kit uh, apparently featured arm. Uh, the arms featured the same 360 degree pivot armhole to offer keepers maximum movement. Well, that's what you want, isn't it? Maximum arm movement from your 360-degree pivot armhole. <laughs> that feels like a subtle dig at the size of Jordan Pickford's arms, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's just a long-running joke I've never understood. I've never really sort of looked at his arms, but um, yeah, okay. Um, this is possibly my favourite um, marketing speak. Um, Warrior, the kind of mid-range football boot manufacturer, um, produced their gambler boots in, in 2013. Uh, and amongst the amongst the many features of these boots were what they termed the glory hole technology. <laughs> <laughs> um, really, they genuinely put that in the actual. That I double checked that this one wasn't some sort of April Fool, but um, yeah, the glory hole glory hole heels or something like that, which which aided control of the ball or something like that. But yeah, glory hole, what wow. an incredible incredible way of describing something. Which is, it's um, ironic, really, because I mean, glory hole in itself is a quite a fairly low tech device. Yes, yes, I suppose it is. <laughs> Fair play for them to naming something, albeit amusingly, naming something and having a, a technological advance is effectively nothing. That, yeah. That's surely the peak of marketing speak. It's, but it must. Uh, I go back to my. One of my first points is it must be really good fun uh, taking a very insignificant uh, detail on, on a product and making it sound like a, a world-beating, game-altering development. But what I would say is that I think that marketing speak did peak maybe two or three years ago, and it's given way to something a little bit more kind of fan-orientated, which is new kits that, that evoke things or, or have a subtle nod to something. And it's so tiresome. It's, it's so boring. So how people can possibly be impressed by this rubbish. And it's just like collars that evoke memories of a, of a club's, you know, glorious 1930-31 season. And uh, are they going too far, Dan? Do you think this is just, this is just insulting people's intelligence? 100%. And I mm. I ask your permission to read the bump from Manchester City's away and third kits for this current Go season, which is that the away kit is, is celebrates the city's Madchester years, inspired by the iconic former Manchester nightclub, the Hacienda. Bear in mind, this is a black shirt yeah. with some yellow on it. It creates a colourful representation of this legendary cultural icon. And then the third shirt, which is that sort of weird fab lolly yellow and peach number, apparently mm. embodies the modernity of the club and its mission to play attractively, technically skilled football. I mean, <laughs> That's on. what I get. That's what I get when I see it. I just think, oh, God, they're just, just so pioneering and forward-thinking. That's what I get from my kit. It's, um, Dave, I mean, this extends to balls as well, like Premier League balls. Um, the latest one, which 
I fear, may never be seen again, um, features pearlized ink, which is inspired by the reflection that comes off the Premier League trophy for quicker reg- recognition in the air. That, what a that can't That can't be a real thing. <laughs> it is. I mean, some people truly are stealing a living out there. That is what they're employed to come up with, and, and fair play to them. I well, we're, we're sat here talking really. about it. It's just the fact that it's inspired by the reflection that comes off the Premier League trophy. Because if, if that if anything didn't need evoking, it's the shininess of some metal on a trophy. It, it absolutely blows my mind. Um, but this but this goes back quite a way. Uh, the Premier League ball for two thousand four oh five, which was the total ninety aero one, um, had the aerodynamic one point two millimeter high solid Tijin PU introduced microtexture to casing called flash casing. Those words only aren't even in any order. <laughs> that makes no sense as a sentence. And uh, I, but, but I guess the effect of this is you're not supposed to understand what it means. It's supposed to wash over you and impress you with its implied technological innovation, even though it's utterly meaningless. And even if you are in on the joke, even if you do think it's bollocks, I think on some level you think, actually, go on, you're all right. I'm, I'm, I'm in. I'm going to buy it. There's a deliberate contrast made isn't there between football which we are so often told is the beautiful game and a very simple construct very deliberately having these uh overblown te- supposed quasi technological advances applied to it i think that is that deliberate contrast that is so ridiculous it's really good fun <laughs> it's a good ball though ball. that one. Oh no oh the 0405 premier league ball is is is, is great that when I you know when I think of Premier League era stuff I think of Frank Lampard shooting with that you know really sort of it's like this nice got the circle the blue or the red yeah. circle the Nike yeah yeah yellow of course, and blue that circle for the had a function as well that was that was to let players know when the ball was spinning apparently it's just everything has everything has a uh, has a purpose I mean um, taking it to a strange extreme in Christmas. Uh, for Christmas 2016, my brother bought me a Quasar sports bag from the 1980s. He bought it off eBay. It was kind of um, they also they also um, provided Gary Lineker with his boots. Quasar, a really kind of niche niche brand. And he, so I had this sports bag, and it and on the side of it, it boasted a state of the art event system, which is basically just a netted pocket. And I feel like that might have been the birth for overblown kit manufacturer jargon um what do you think so much so much of this is very hard to distinguish as you said between whether it was real or on april fools like <laughs> i remember i rem- the april fool kit thing that sticks out in my head was seeing neil ruddock wear an adidas branded yes! plastic head ba- headband that said yes! he would be able to head the ball in from like the halfway line and as that a, sounds a like ten, quite a good idea 10 year old i saw i bought it i believed it oh my god but yeah, an Adidas, Adidas Predator kind of headband sounds like a really good idea because getting purchase off your forehead is surely quite an important thing. And it wouldn't be against was, the rules. They'd let you wear it. Basically like having Young a tire headband around your head. Yeah. Yeah. They should it was amazing. It. Well, I'm I mean, amazed they have gone through with it. It does, it does lead us onto, or lead us back to, rather, the, the Predator. I mean, we can't talk about marketing speak and stupid gimmicks without the original Predator boot. I don't know if you two experienced this as well, but the the one or two kids that had Predator boots in my school, we were all just glued to, to, to watching them kick the ball and convinced that it was curling more than it would do anyway. When, it, when of course it wasn't. Nobody knew how to curl a ball when they're 10 years old. I, was, those I was completely gr- those sold little, on it. 
I was yeah, the little grooves old. on the boot. Yeah. Like I just yeah. thought, right, if I buy those, that will make me really good at football. And of course, I, I never wasn't allowed a pair. No, I, I just simply wasn't allowed a pair. They were too expensive, and it was just like you, you're not having those. They are ridiculous. When I was 17, which is far too old for this story to be true, uh, I received driving lessons for my birthday and I traded them in with my mum for a pair of Predators and I can still, age 34, I can still not drive and have never had a lesson. (laughs) (laughs) Blame Predators for my lack of transport during this period of lockdown. Wow. The Adidas Predators, the ripples of through life of the Adidas (laughs) Predator. Uh, So Beckham obviously became one of its kind of prime wearers in the professional level but before he wore predators he wore a, a, a boot called the seeker blades does anyone remember these yes no. seeker blades had this kind of innovative innovative kind of well they weren't studs uh, they were just sort of well on the heel it was an x shape and uh, the idea was that they would they improved your ability to sort of turn and spin yeah he wore he wore seeker blades i think on loan at Preston and in his early sort of Manchester United days before he before he got snapped up by Adidas, but it seems just a little strange chapter in in football boot history these these things. But that they but now we don't think twice about kind of innovations like that, do we? The, those blades, their legacy lives on because you can still find uh, generally older power league referees who will say uh, no metal studs, no blades when starting a game. So they are they very much still are in the cultural uh, awakening. Blades were hugely controversial at some point. Um, Alex Ferguson came out and sort of bemoaned the, the the safety concerns about bladed studs, sort of at the end of the end of the nineties, Dave. And it, they became quite a controversial aspect of football boots. Yeah, I, and I, I was actually surprised to go back and learn this because I was talking to you and uh, producer AD yesterday, and I was like, "Well, what's wrong, what's wrong with blades? They're just they're just kind of a slight variation on the molded stud, which I which I, I've worn the molded stud since." time immemorial and it's fine but then you actually yeah you're right you look and there was an incident in a game where Wayne Rooney basically his thigh was basically split open and the doc- the doctor said if it had been a little bit deeper and it had uh, severed his femoral artery it could have died and it is a huge gash. I mean, and I think the, the reason why they were deemed to be unsafe was not because of the blades themselves, how they were made. It was, and we've talked about this on previous episodes, a problem because when they were worn on concrete in a tunnel, say, or a dressing room, the plastic would get sharpened and basically yeah, become yeah, exactly. like, literally like a knife edge. Oh yeah, they can be. They can be really sort of yeah. They're a little snagged and, and and they get really sort of misshapen and they get quite quite dangerous. But feels yes, like a, I don't know. I'm just very much a blades guy. I don't know. Maybe I just I just want to feel dangerous at all times. Dave's story there <laughs> sounds like a, a brilliant mid nineties casualty episode. I'm really enjoying. Yeah. It. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to our good pals at Beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash cliches and pay the postage of £4.95. And as if that wasn't enough, as a listener of The Athletic Podcast, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's 10 free beers. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the very best craft breweries. They are now the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. 
Each month, Beer 52 deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave at any time. The power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a beery snack is thrown in too. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash cliches to get your case free. And don't forget, right now, Football Cliches listeners get two extra free beers. A little look back through the list of Premier League kit manufacturers reveals an absolutely absurd number of really strange sort of companies. I, I, I would blindly assume that Premier League history would have been dominated by your Umbros, your Nikes and your Adidases. But let me read out this list of, of kit manufacturers and see how many you remember. Ribeiro, they they produced Wimbledon. Buckter and Nutmeg, they were Palace. QPR had Brooks Running, Clubhouse and View From. Swindon had their shirts made by Pony and Loki. And you've got Fulham whose shirt was made by Airness in 2006. Airness. Uh, Wigan have had someone called Vandenel. Birmingham have had Extep. Wolves have had Burda. And Watford, Dave, had their kit made by Dry World. Yeah, very recently, in fact. Is that like the opposite good. of Waterworld? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kevin Costner. Quite... Epic. <laughs> It was quite a good, it was quite a, I like the reference, uh, that famously uh, overblown budget flop. Um, it was quite a good kit, the dry world. We also had um, similar with, I think we, we were, with Reading were the other club who did the same thing as well. In the mid, in the early noughties, we had, we manufactured our own kit, basically. We kind oh, of funded yes. this own, this company called Kit At. Oh my God. Kit, and then like the At email symbol. And it was but- terrible, terrible kit. Club, clubs making their own kit is, is about as two bob as it gets, isn't it, Daniel? Surely. I was going to say, that that kit at, with the at symbol, that is peak 90s as well, isn't it? <laughs> that's, like every, that's like every boy and girl band having a, a, an album track that had some, the word email in the title. It's so <laughs> 90s. Yeah. Southampton, made, uh, Southampton, as recently as 2014-15, made their own kit, which astonishes me. Um, you think at a Premier League level, you wouldn't have to resort to this. Um, West Brom have done it. Portsmouth have done it. Coventry did it. Leicester. Leicester made their own kits under the brand Fox Leisure, which is kind of cool. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I just feel like, um, I just feel like making your own kit is unnecessarily uh, too bob. But also, surely, yeah, too bob. But also, like, surely, way more hassle than it's worth. Oh, totally. Like, how, the kit man suddenly uh, comes in and says, "Mate, yeah. you're gonna have to make the kit." <laughs> That's your job. <laughs> At the World Cup in 1978, Mexico's kit, Daniel, was made by who? Ooh, no idea is the honest answer. Levi's. Levi's Amazing. made Mexico's kit. I just, mind blown. I, I knew it and my mind remains blown. If anything, that USA 94 denim number was there, very much their wheelhouse. Yeah. You think Levi's would have pioneered the the denim kit, but no, it was just it was just a tasteful dark green. Sunday League kit manufacturers are a different world. I feel I feel I think of Spall, I think of ProStar, and, and they're these glorious names of Sunday League kits. And before Adidas and Nike sort of really started flooding the market with their really boring kind of team wear. Um, yeah. Do you remember who made your first Sunday League kit, Dan? I think it was, and this is a name that's very much been lost. It's a very 90s name for, for kits and boots, was Ulsport. 
Ah, which I they're think goalkeepery, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, but they they made some really cool boots in the like late nineties, I'd guess. I think I remember Blackburn players having a deal with them. I think. Yeah. But yeah, they've gone off the face of the earth. Dave, who, who made your first Sunday league kit? Um. Well, actually, technically speaking, my first Sunday league kit, I didn't wear it until I was 28, I think, something like that. Okay. Um, and it was just it was just a Nike team wear. I Is did it, wear uh, a school kit when I played for my primary school team. When I basically got in the team by virtue of being one of the oldest boys in the in year six, I was absolutely <laughs> pathetic. The only thing I can remember doing was was two things. One, scoring an own goal. And two, playing left back and thinking in my head, such was the lack of coaching that I had at the time, that playing left back meant I meant I had to stay in the left back corner of the pitch and couldn't leave it at any point. Um, but that, I think, was a handmade kit. I think oh someone's mum made it. Oh. A sewing machine job. And, and, and this, this affected you so much, you didn't play football again for 17 years? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> What's going yeah. on? The trauma was deep. Um, <laughs> Let's have some listener contributions here um, in terms of some of the more obscure kits that they've managed to collect. Uh, Michael says, I own a Dalin Mislenica shirt. They're a club in the Polish 4th Division who play in the mountains south of Krakow. I taught English to a couple of their players in 2016 and they gave me it as a gift. Well, that's pretty cool. Um, Marku, well, this is this is ultimately the, the coolest kit you could ever have. Marku Sardu says the jewel of my collection is the San Marino shirt for the 1994 World Cup qualifying campaign, as worn by David Galtieri against England. He of the famous seven-second goal. Surely that can't be beaten, San Marino 1994. Dan, can you beat that? I have a thing for white kits. I've got about a hundred shirts and I think about 90 of them are white shirts um, and I've got the my two favourites are the uh, LC Loja shirt which is the Spanish club sponsored by the local seafood market and therefore has massive prawns on the front and the back which is an excellent <laughs> shirt uh, and there's also I also have the uh, I think it's Club Deportivo de Monte Carlo which is officially an exclusive shirt Are they sort of pretend Monaco? Yeah, well, I think it's even more exclusive than that. Yeah, I think it's the the team of workers, I think, at some of the high-end hotels, I think, is originally how they were formed. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, less obscure, I, you, also own, you also own the AC Milan shirt from about 1990, don't you? Who got you that? Who bought you that? Yes. Uh, yeah, you kindly delivered me from... Uh, the world, fa- the now world famous Japanese football shirt. Oh shop. yeah, let's talk about this, Dave. We have to have to have to enlighten you about this. I went I went on my honeymoon to Japan in 2017, and I stumbled across quite nice. literally stumbled across the greatest football shop in the world. It was it was unbelievable. I, I walked in, and the first kit I could see was Nigeria's 1994 World Cup shirt, and I just thought this is where I'm supposed to be. This is where I'm supposed to be. And I spent hours. I looked at every single shirt in that shop, picking them out, uh, deciding whether I could really afford to spend five-figure yen on on this shirt. And, I, oh, God, I've got so many. That was going to be my great. question. I can't wait to go back. How expensive were they? Because you know, you've got the, the classic football shirt shops yeah. in London and Manchester these days and on the website. I mean, and they are amazing places. Sound mm. very similar to this place in Japan. But, Christ, they're expensive, some of the shirts. 
yeah, I think they would. They would. They seemed a little bit cheaper there because their, their stock was so much deeper. Like they didn't just have one-offs; they had you know quite a lot of them. But the the depth of their stock was just incredible, and, and the the variety of it. Because they've got an Instagram page which everyone should look up because they they post a shirt every single day, and they get one of the staff members to just sort of stand on a on a sort of external staircase looking wistfully across Tokyo wearing whatever shirt it is that day. And it can be anything. It could be like Coventry Away 1994 or Sheffield Wednesday or Monaco or anybody. They just pick out. Their, their, their selective capabilities for this is just it's just so well pitched. And and I don't know if it's done out of, you know, ignorance for the whether they think teams are big or not or they just do it out of, you know, randomness. But it's such a great place. And you can go on the website. You can't order them online, but you can just scan across their current stock and it's just amazing i have to say uh, you can do that but to me that is like looking at sweets from the outside of the sweet shop when it's closed <laughs> i've got I ca- nose I cannot, pressed up against the window yeah i cannot abide doing i did for a while but it just gets you down in our appreciation of football kits that there are some little bugbears i have for example player names in lower case which i feel like has been a bundesliga thing for years and years and years that's just that's rubbish isn't it surely you want you want your names in huge capital letters on the back, don't you, Dave? I absolutely agree, yes. Preferably in big, nice, blocky fonts as well. Um, but don't, don't the Bundesliga have their names on the lower back of the shirt? Yeah, that really confuses me. When you're watching like a goal on YouTube from, say, Brazil or something, and, and, and you, you're trying to work out who the player is, and it's just got a sponsor on the top of their shirt, and you, you're ended up Googling something completely different. The, the, the Bundesliga thing is even more weird because the, the, the typical thing they do is have the club name on the top of the shirt and their marketing speak for that is that no player is bigger than the club so the club oh must be on top of God. the player. Oh, that's so think, Bundesliga. Yeah, but two, th- two things. Firstly, everyone knows which team it is anyway so just don't have the name at all. And secondly, they aren't allowed to do it in the UEFA competitions which means presumably those players who would consider themselves bigger than club have to be dropped for those matches. Dan I've got a little tester for you when it comes to shirt names at the top level I'm going to give you four names and I want you to tell me who the odd one out is Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank Geordie Cruyff Stelios Giannacopoulos and Wilfred Bonney so this must be about having non-surnames on the back of the shirt I remember Stelios had Stelios um so, so is he the odd one out? No, or is it the it, other way actually, around. It's Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank because um he made his debut in the Premier League against Arsenal and scored for for Leeds in 1997 with Jimmy on the back of his shirt. Ah. And the FA quickly intervened and said you can't have that. You can't have nicknames. Um Jimmy was a nickname he picked up in Portugal from his first chairman there. Uh it's not actually his name. His name's Gerald. And uh so the FA quickly intervened and said, you're going to have to have Hasselbank on the back of your shirt. So he quickly switched back there. But the other three were actually allowed to have their first names on the back of their shirt. Janikopoulos is the only one that should have been allowed, really, if we're being strict about it. Because, you know, that's what? quite a long surname. But, but been, length isn't a, an issue. I mean, I, there's this kind of common misconception these days that you pay by the letter still. I don't think you do that anymore. I don't think clubs insist on that so name name length is shouldn't be an issue and if anything when a, when a really long a really long surname looks great on the back of the shirt like Hasselbank really looked just more imperious with the, with a really long surname on the back and if sort of in later years when they started curling it round the shoulders it, that was even better it looked great yeah the, the Venegor of Hesselink headband shape <laughs> on the on the shirt was and if he can have his surname on a shirt then anyone can 
Yeah, I'm just not keen on players like um, Socrates at Arsenal. I mean, I don't, I don't believe that there is a backstory here. I don't think this is a family issue or anything like that. He just has Socrates on the back of his shirt. Why not Papastathopoulos? It's just yeah, that would look incredible on the back of his shirt. It's his surname. One final curiosity that I've got um, about kits, uh, and it dawned on me in the preparation for this podcast, is how the hell do you become a kit man? Do you need like qualifications? Do you need to be, I don't know, like a groundsman? Because the groundsman, if you flick through the Premier League handbook, which is a wonderful document. You, you, uh, the It lists all the qualifications for every groundsman in the Premier League. Everton's Bob Lennon has OND, NDH and RHS after his name. Villa's Carl Prescott has an MVQ level 1, 2, 3 and 4 in sports turf and an MVQ level 4 in sports turf management. But top of the tree, Lee Jackson at Manchester City has, has all of those things, plus a foundation degree in sports turf science, part one, two, and six of the chemical application licenses. It's like he just got to two and went, ah, oh, sod it, I'll just, I'll just <laughs> yeah. flick to six. Uh, but it, it doesn't seem to me like kit men need to go through the same process. Uh, Colin writes in and says, I think the first step is getting your UEFA K licence. That's, <laughs> That's, That's very, very good. good. Um, Dan Heap suggests it's like royalty. You have to be born into it. Uh, and then eventually the actual England kit man replied and says... Right place, right time. Pat Frost just says you have to be in the right place at the right time. That's all it takes to be a kit man. Of course, he's called Pat Frost as well. That's a <laughs> really good kit man name. It feels like <laughs> feels like anachronistically that would be a, a real sort of part of the furniture job, along with coach driver, and probably doing it as a dual role. Um, but now, I mean, now I guess at a big Premier League club, there's a, probably a heck of a lot. You know, we're we're gently jabbing it, but there's probably a heck of a lot of really ball-ache tasks to do, I suspect. It, it does sound both a, a mundane job, but also quite an important one for the spirit of the team, Dave. I feel like kit men are the, are the magnet for all the banter in a, in a Premier League football club. And and no greater example than the absolute star of the Manchester City Amazon documentary. The kit man ah. on there, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, the ball guy with a beard and like proper Mancunian bloke. He was always dancing after the big wins. He was oh, I like remember his dancing, jumping yeah. in the bath and yeah. running around in his pants. Like proper, like in maybe, I think, yeah, as Dan says, like the, as coaches and all that lot have become more and more professional, whereas once upon a time, you probably would have had just like the assistant manager was the guy that was just doing all the jokes and the banter in the changing room. But now he needs to be more professional. The kit man can still get away with just being a clown. Yeah, but at the same time, they don't seem important enough to that you hear about their contracts being renewed. You don't see sort of new three-year deal for Manchester City kit man. Or, and you don't hear any transfer rumours about kit men because surely kit men are just that, that you know, an equally important to the kind of running of a of a well-oiled football machine. I, I, I'd love to see the, the first transfer saga for a kit man going from one club to another. And, well, if and that ever happens, then to... I think we, we always need to give up. <laughs> well, that brings our our quest to decipher the language of kits and boots and balls to an end. Thanks both for joining me. Dave, have a lovely day. Well, that brings us to the end of our little quest to decipher the language of kits and boots and balls. Um, before before we say goodbye, um, we've got a very short little cliche quiz this week. Uh, this is the only one I could think of related to kits. So here we go. This is, this is one question only. Uh, fingers on the buzzers. What is the only way you can put on a pair of goalkeeper gloves in the language of football? Oh. Um, Come on. Don? Don the it is indeed. 
Don. Yeah. Very good. You don the gloves. Dave's won. You've won a quiz. You've won the Gleason Absolutely. <laughs> Brilliant. My, is that my Dan, first Daniel win of the was season? Rusty. Dan, Daniel doesn't know the traditions of the cliche quiz. I, I haven't thought in the mind of Adam Hurry for weeks now. So. <laughs> That's good to know. That's good to know. Well, with that in mind, thank you both for, for joining me today. It was, uh, that was quite a fascinating little episode. Daniel, um, I, I presume you're, you're off to play the World Cup on Super Kickoff 2 or something like that in full. Yeah, I've actually, yeah. Uh, when I tweeted that thing out, I worried because I'm meant to be finishing a book at the moment and I was worried about a, a, a sort of snide like from the publisher. <laughs> yeah, as in, why aren't you getting on with your with the Indeed, thing we're paying yes. you to do? That's all right. You need something, you need something to keep your brain busy, that's all right. Uh, Dave, I'll send you the link to the Japanese football website and that'll be your life uh, ruined. And uh, thanks very much. We'll see everyone next week. All our podcasts are completely free and ad-free versions are available to subscribers. You can sign up and get 90 days free by going to theathletic.com forward slash cliches pod.